Morning, church. It is good to be with you on this uh, bit of a chilly uh, June winter's morning, but uh, we know it's going to be a good time. So welcome. Welcome to church. A little bit of where we've been. We've been, can you believe it, in the book of James for the past four months. Four months we've been in James. And I'm sure you can testify that it was a joy to go through, challenging, but it was a blessing to our church. Um, So what next? What is next for Rooted Fellowship? What are we going to be looking at next? Well, we've looked at a series and we've decided to term it the Word of God, a desire for the Word of God. And we're going to be going through Psalm 119. Okay, Um, So that's where we're going. If you are new to Rooted Rooted Fellowship this morning, a warm welcome to you. If you're a regular, a warm welcome to you. As always, if you're a non-believer and you're coming to check out and see what we're about, you are welcome here. All are welcome at Rooted Fellowship. This morning, Dumalang, Liam Mochetswe, Momochai, Siana Magalaya, Rooted Fellowship. Welcome, Beyonce Kirk, and welcome to church. So, at the beginning of the year, we went through a devotion on this psalm, Psalm 119. Maybe some of you will remember. It was a written devotion that we sent out. I think it was about five, six, six, five or six days that we sent out um, the first six verses just to kind of whet our appetites and get us, get us going for the series that we're about to start. And some of you who have come to Root of Fellowship or joined in the last year or two may have come to something called Our Story. Could I see if you've come to Our Story? If you've been to Our Story, you can raise your hand up high. Okay, cool. I'm not asking for giving, I promise you. Okay, we've got another Our Story coming up in three weeks. It's going to be on the 24th of June. And in Our Story, we tell you what we're about. This is what we're about at Root of Fellowship. This is how Root of Fellowship became something real. This is how we became what we are this morning. But at that, our story time, you'd hear us say something about our beliefs. And this is what we believe about the Word of God. We believe that the Word is inspired by God, and it is therefore without error. Okay, So this is a nice theological term, but we believe it, it is inerrant, without error. It's completely of God. And church, you, you would recognize this. We get up here every single Sunday, and we preach through this text, line by line. On Wednesday evenings or Tuesday evenings or Friday evenings, when you, when you gather as a city group, we go through the Bible line by line. We go through our texts. When you get together as D groups or accountability groups, we say, how is your word reading going? What is God revealing to you in his word? What's happening in the word? We as a church believe that the word challenges us. It brings us peace and it equips us. But that's not just what we believe. That is actually what the Bible says of itself. This is what the Word of God says. The author in Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, it's like a scalpel, a surgical scalpel that cuts us deep and reveals to us the conditions of our hearts. That's what the word does. What else does it do? Isaiah 55, 11, the prophet says this, speaking on behalf of the Lord. It says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall, it shall accomplish that which, I, which uh, shall the purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, it equips us because it accomplishes God's purposes here on earth. It equips us. It challenges us. What else does it do? It brings us comfort in challenging times. I'm sure many people can testify to that. 
Paul, at the end of his last letter to Timothy, the last letter that he writes, 2 Timothy 4.13, he says, it's his last thing that he says, he says, Timothy, my brother, bring the scrolls. As I sit here waiting death in the cell, bring me the scrolls, bring the parchments that I may be comforted in my last days. That is what the word of God does. And so given all these things, given our beliefs, given what the word says, given where we feel God is calling us as a church, we felt that we should be journeying through a series on the word of God. And so where do we turn? Well, we turn to the Psalms. Now, for those of you who don't know, or perhaps you're not a Christian, maybe you're new to the faith, the book of Psalms served as a hymn book, a type of hymn book, which is a collection of corporate worship songs, poems, and prayers for the nation of Israel's temple worship. Now, I recognize as I look out amongst the hall, I see there's quite a few millennials and younger. So you probably don't know what a hymn book is. Well, let me go back in time. This is what we do nowadays, right? So we've got our, our songs come up on the screen. We're blessed by the technology. Before this, you guys may remember, it was like that transparency thing. We're like, you used to write on it. They used to write the words. And then like, as the chorus and the verse came, you would quickly change that up. And then you have the next verse. Transparency. Does anyone remember those? Okay, yeah, yeah, we've got a few. And before that, we had a hymn book. Okay, so when I went to school and church, I had something, a hymn book. I had to keep it in my blazer pocket because that's what we'd sing from. <clears throat> and that is what the Psalms, the book of Psalms is. Now, the book of Psalms, or the word psalm, comes from the Greek word, which means to pluck or twang a stringed instrument. Steve, I haven't asked you, but I'm going to do this anyways. Can you hear it, guys? Psalm. Sounds like psalm, right? That was a dad joke, okay. It's probably a bad joke as well. But this, the, 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 the Greek word psalm actually comes from the Hebrew word tenilim, which is a song of praise or a melody of praise, okay. I'm going to pull up a slide that's going to show you kind of the breakdown of the structure of the book of Psalms. So it's going to come up. And it essentially, don't worry about the facts too much. I'll kind of walk us through, but you don't need to remember this. But just to give you a broad idea, uh, the book of Psalms is a collection of 150 ancient hymns, songs, and prayers from the nation of Israel's Hebrew culture, from different periods in the nation of history, uh, Israel's history. It had many different authors. So certain Psalms are written by David, Moses, Solomon, and a lot of them were written by unknown authors. They were sung by the choirs in the temple of Israel before the nation of Israel was conquered by Babylon and exiled. But after exile, these 150 psalms were put together, compiled into a book that we now know as the book of psalms. And Luther, the great reformist, he actually termed the psalms the Bible within the Bible. Okay, the Bible within the Bible. Why does he say that? It's because it's parallels the story of the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. So if you read certain Psalms, it tells us where the nation of Israel was at that time. But he also calls it this because of the richness of the words found in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms that we have today is divided into five sections, right? Five sections. Very original names. Book one, book two, book three, book four, and book five. Okay? Those are the names of the five books in the Psalms. And interesting, it, what happens is if you look there, book one, it's got an analogy. It's paralleled with the five books of Moses, the Torah, the original Torah. 
Okay, so the first book uh, parallels with Genesis. Book 2, Exodus. Book 3, Leviticus. Book 4, Numbers. And book 5, Deuteronomy. That's the book of Psalms' general structure. But the book of Psalms kind of has an intro in Psalm 1 and 2. Okay, so Psalm 1 and 2 set the whole book up for the message of Psalms. And Psalms 1, Psalm 1's main theme, or expression, shall I say, is how blessed are the people who focus and meditate on the Torah. How blessed are those who meditate and focus on the Torah, the teaching, instruction. What is the Torah? It's the Hebrew word Torah in the strict sense actually means instruction, teaching, doctrine. Although we do know that the Torah referred to the five books of Moses, the first five books in the Old Testament. And so Psalm 1, in a sense, is implying that the five book of Psalms are a new type of Torah, a new type of instruction, a teaching for God's people on the lifelong practice of prayer and meditating on his word. And Psalm 2, still part of the intro, Psalm 2 is called a messianic psalm. And this messianic psalm speaks about the first coming of the Messiah, who we now know was Jesus. But it was written before he came, for the first time. And this psalm's main theme was, blessed are those who take refuge and comfort in the hope of the coming Messiah. So the intro sets us up. Blessed are those who meditate on God's word, and blessed are those who take hope and comfort on the coming Messiah. That is where we find ourselves today, church. The Psalms are essentially the prayer book of God's people striving to be faithful to God's word whilst awaiting the messianic kingdom or Jesus' return. And so they are as relevant to us today as they were to the Israelites of many years ago. But as you can see, we've got 150 Psalms. So Rooted Fellowship, why Psalm 119? Well, this Psalm forms part of book number five. And it's paralleled with Deuteronomy. And this entire fifth book's main concern is God and his word. And so it consists of prayers, thanksgiving, and praise for what God and his word does. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the book of Psalms. And in fact, it is the longest chapter in the Bible. Now, I know what you're thinking. Please, is he going to go through the whole thing? I'm not. Don't worry. It's got 176 verses, 22 sections. And it is slap bang in the middle of book five. As I mentioned, it carries on the main theme and expression from Psalm 1. Blessed are those who meditate and focus on God's word. One source described it as the Mount Everest of the book of Psalms. Does that inspire you or does that scare you? Okay. I hope it does a bit of both. If, if Mount Everest is too high, then we think of Fairy Glen. Okay. It's going to be tough going up. But man, when we get to the top, it's going to be worth it. Okay, I assure you. Now, Psalm 119, this is how it's written. It's an alphabet poem, okay? And so each section, each stanza begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, so to try and illustrate this point, this would kind of like be what it's like. So the entire first stanza would begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which would be Aleph. So that would be like me. Uh, this is the poem that I composed yesterday. I am not very talented. This would be like saying, apples are great. Andile likes apples. Can you say that with me? Apples are great. Andile likes apples. 
each line started with the letter A, right? Um, afterwards, when we have coffee, let's see if you remember that. Okay, because the reason why it, they wrote it that way is to try and get people to remember it because they didn't have things written down that much. And so it was an oral tradition, oral culture, and so we wrote psalms and poems in a way that people could remember them. So today, church, we are looking at the first section, verses eight, 1 to 8, titled Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And every line in that stanza or section would have begun with the letter Aleph. But we won't pick that up because of the translation, of course. But we're going to see that Psalm 119, Aleph, verses 1 to 8, explores the wonder and gift of God's word to God's people. It's not surprising that Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, though, if you think about it, because this is the Bible in itself speaking about the Bible. It's a poem that uses a lot of repetition and a lot of coupling of thoughts. Like I said, apples are great, and Delia likes apples. A lot of repetition, a lot of coupling of ideas. And this psalm is classified as a Torah poem, an instruction poem, thanking God for the goodness of his word and in him giving it to us. It demonstrates the importance of reflecting and meditating on what God has done for us. And what has he done for us, church? He's given us his beautiful word. And so we need to meditate on that. And that is what we're going to do this morning. That's what we're going to do for the next four weeks. When we come back to the series a bit later on in the year, that's what we're going to do for another four weeks. And then next year, we're going to do it for another, how's my maths? 22 minus 8, 14 weeks. Okay, so we're going to be two years in this, interspersed with other series in between. But before we come to God's beautiful word and open up Psalm 119, Aleph, verses 1 to 8, let us pray. We adore you, Father God, constant, eternal, and loving Father. We thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. We come first, Lord, we come before you now humbly and we say we are broken. Lord, we are self-reliant people and we are full of pride. But thank you, Lord, that in your love and wisdom you sent your son, Jesus Christ, who in dying on the cross made a way for us to become before you now, Lord God, as we do. And pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fill this place now, fill our hearts, fill our minds. Speak to us, O Lord, as a church, that we would receive your message. Lord God, I pray that I would preach your message and that ultimately through this time, using this time, you would align our hearts with yours. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Psalm 119, if you've got your Bibles, your devices, please, I invite you to open it up as we journey through this psalm together. Psalm 119, verses 1 to 8. It'll be up on the screen, but let us journey together. Psalm 109, Aleph. It says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. 
do not utterly forsake me. We thank you, Lord, for this, your word. Amen. Verses 1 to 3, we're going to take a deeper look in verses 1 to 3. Particularly verses 1 to 2, actually. You see, because these two verses set the tone for the entire Psalm 119, entire 176 verses. And they tell us that the key to true joy is to walk in the way of our God, or to follow the will of the Lord God. But where is the law? Where is the will of the Lord found? Where is his way found? Maybe you're asking that. Where, where, where is this way? It's in fact revealed to us in his word. Now that sounds simple, right? That sounds simple. But if you think about it, it's a message that is completely countercultural to what the world around us is. Think about advertising. Obey your thirst. Just do it. Peer pressure. Do what feels right. If we want to be happy, we're told, do your own thing. Follow your heart. Don't lead your heart. Follow your heart. I was chatting to a pastoral friend of mine this week, and we were discussing how so often people believe that ways outside of God's ways will lead them to happiness. Honestly, church, I'll stand here confessing that actually I honestly believe that a lot of the time. But the, the, the psalmist here reminds us that this is a lie of the devil, whose goal is to cheat, steal, and destroy. How often do we hear of marriages torn apart because of adultery? And the cheating party citing that this is what makes them happy. Sometimes they even believe that God brings this extramarital partner across their path. Church, God's word is clear on that issue, as it is on so many issues. It says, do not commit adultery. In fact, it even says, do not commit adultery in your hearts. The repercussions are dire, and this will not lead to happiness. It leads to despair, to unhappiness, and to death. And so that is why we need to start reading our Bibles so that we can be equipped with the knowledge of God's way. What is his God, God's way? It's in his word. It's in the Bible. How should I date? Read the Bible. How should I relate to my kids? Read the Bible. How should I love my spouse? Read the Bible. How do I submit to my boss? Someone said it. Read the Bible. How should I do well at work or honor people at work? Read the Bible. How do I look after my body? Read the Bible. How do I manage my finances? Read the Bible. You see, when we follow God's way, his joy will follow. Please notice, what did I say? His joy will follow. The psalmist doesn't say life will be easy. But he says, blessed are those who follow the Lord's way. We need to submit to God's will, not our own fleshly fallen wills. One of the founders of the esoteric movement, which is a dark arts, occult, kind of a satanic movement, didn't found his movement on do what the devil says, but he founded his movement on do what thou wilt. In other words, do what you want. Just follow what you want. This will lead to happiness. But actually, what does God's word say? It leads us to death. 
Submitting to God's will leads to abundant, joyous life, and submitting to ours leads to death. Yes, in submitting to God's will, it doesn't mean that we won't have problems. But in God's mercy and his grace, we will be able to face these problems and find joy in the midst of it all. Think about it. Throughout the entire Bible, the way of the fallen world is contrasted to the way of God. And each time the way of the world is chosen, death ensues. Each time God's word and his ways are followed, life. In Genesis, Adam and Eve choose to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge. They are cursed and exiled from the Garden of Eden. Death enters the world. In Exodus, Moses chooses shepherding sheep according to God's will instead of enjoying the lavish life of being the prince of Egypt. And he becomes the greatest leader in establishing the nation of Israel. Throughout the historical and prophetic books, we have countless accounts of the Israel's leaders, God's chosen people. And in these accounts, we read how they are blessed when they follow him and they suffer death, even exile, when they do not. Characters such as Samson, David, Jeremiah, they can all testify to this. And that is why the psalmist in another psalm, Psalm 84, verse 10, writes this. He says, I would rather be a door holder in God's house than enjoy the full benefits of living with the wicked. I would rather be a door holder in God's house than enjoy the full benefits of living with the wicked. Throughout the entire book of Proverbs, the way of God's wisdom is contrasted with the way of the earthly-minded fool. And church, over the past year and a bit, we've journeyed through two New Testament church letters. The, uh, the, the book of James, which we've just finished up, last year, 1 Corinthians. And we've seen what happens to communities, to churches, when they choose the way of the world instead of God's ways. Letters like this are written to get churches, to get communities back to God's ways. And of course, the ultimate example is found in Jesus. He says, Lord, take this cup away from you, but if it is your will, let it be so. And in Jesus, what happens? He follows God's will. Eternal life happens. God calls us to follow his ways. But church, God is good. He is omnipotent, which means he is all-powerful. He is omnipresent. He is all around us and he transcends time. And he is omniscient, all-knowing. He knows everything. And so his ways that he gives us are completely true. And I sense that we need to hear that this morning. His ways are completely true. He doesn't call us to something that he can't deliver on. Or that's ultimately bad for us. That's not what he calls us to. He's not a cold, distant father who doesn't want us to enjoy life. That's not God. He is our loving, devoted Baba who wants us to thrive within the boundaries that keeps us safe. I've seen a lot of parents, a lot of dads out here. You know, they've, they've got their daughters or their sons there outside by the urns and they're kind of like, no, 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 don't go there. Don't touch that because if you touch that, that's hot. That's going to burn. He tells us these things out of love. He's not like the telemarketer who phones you up on your phone and says, hey, listen, I've got a free holiday for you. Free holiday. Just come to something, pay 20 grand, then it's free. It's not like that. 
He's also not like the executor who emails you from this UK account that's like left all this money to you and says, listen, just please give me your bank details and you'll get the, the, the full rights of this. That's not who God is. God is good and true. That's who he is and so his word is true. If he says it's good for us, it's good for us. And if he says it's going to burn church, it's going to burn us. Verses 4 to 6. In these verses, verses 4 to 6, it speaks of precepts, statutes, commandments. That's what the psalmist speaks of. The Hebrew word for these, for these words was picadum, picadum. And picadum speak of the things that are authorized by God. They are authorized by God, authored by God. They are his very mandates. And so if they are God's mandates, they are weighty and true. The psalmist here is speaking of the very words of God. He's speaking about the Bible you hold in your hands right now. And he says that the Bible is completely authoritative. Why is it authoritative? Because God brought it into being and he is all-knowing. He says it is trustworthy. The, The word of God is trustworthy. Why? Because God is good. And it is perfectly and permanently relevant for all time. Why? Because God is Yahweh. I am. He is all the time. Now I'm going to set something up for you. Please don't let me down to illustrate this point. God is good. And all the time. That's amen. That's what this book says. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. If that is true, church, if we really believe that, then we must believe that God's true words of wisdom are good for us. And they're not some abstract set of rules, a list of do nots. I don't know if you've heard this. Some people say, no, the Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. That's not what the Bible is. They are not the basic instructions before leaving earth. Tim Keller says that the Bible actually is an expression of God's character. But it's not just a CV. We don't study it in our own strength, in a pharisaical, religious way. No, no, no. We read it to know more of our loving Father and Creator. To spend time with Him. And to enjoy full communion with Him. I was recently at a lecture um, by Dr. Manfred Cole. And his claim to fame is that he has apparently visited more than 400 seminaries, which is a fancy church Christian name for Christian universities. This is where we train pastors. So he's visited over 400 seminaries. Apparently it's the most in the world. So he kind of holds a record for visiting the most number of seminaries. But he tells a story that once they went to a community that was being served pastors by a certain seminary. So in other words, it's like if we were rooted fellowship the pastors that we got were coming from a certain seminary. Um, And a pastor had just left, so now they were looking for a new pastor. And so he was kind of doing research, and he was there, and they were kind of talking about which pastors they should get from the seminary. And a woman got up and she said, "Uh, we don't want pastors from your seminary anymore. So the seminary was like, well, why not? She said, well, because they never do what they say they're going to do, and they don't know the Bible. 
So they said, okay, thank you very much for your concerns. Please come and help us. Help us identify what you as a church would want in a pastor. And so they started conducting research. They researched academics, so Christian academics, people who are working in the seminary. They did research with pastors coming out of the seminary. And then they did research with the churchgoers. And they came up with six categories. I'm going to give them to you. Six categories of what seminary trains you in. They said, seminary trains you in evangelism, which is outreach, preaching, church history, systematic theology, integrity, and Bible knowledge. Interesting. Academics prioritized those six items completely in reverse to what churchgoers prioritized. Started with systematic theology and went right down. I'm not going to give you the... The, the highest priority yet. Pastors were a bit better, but they tended to prioritize preaching. And then they went to the churchgoers. What do the churchgoers want? They want people who lived the truth, who knew their Bibles. We started something recently this year in, uh, in, at Ruder Fellowship in our, some of our D groups and accountability groups where we ask each other five questions. Five questions. We say, how's the reading going? How's your, how's your time in the Word? How's your time in prayer? Are you exposing your mind to anything sexually inappropriate? Are you looking after your body? And are you looking after your finances? And church, without fail, I can tell you this. That when I'm not spending time in the Word, every single other question answers poor, poorly. When I'm not in the Word, I don't spend time in prayer. I don't look after my body. I don't look after my finances, and I expose my mind to inappropriate things. God's word is true, and we need to read it if we want to be people of integrity who are truthful beings. Finally, verses 7 and 8. We come to verses 7 and 8. And these verses show us that not only do we find joy in following God's ways, but the theologian Wayne Grudem says that the first section of the psalm, the whole, the whole section we've just read, Aleph, shows us that walking in the way of the Lord or meditating on his word, in other words, making it part of our lives, being obedient to it, submitting to it, also equates us to being blameless in God's sight. And so it allows us to stand upright and not be forsaken. It allows us to enter into eternal life. You may recall, some of you who were here last week, that Reno, as we wrapped up James chapter 5, he reminded us when finishing up this chapter that one day, church, this is going to happen. Every knee will bow before the Lord God. But those who do not do so willingly before that time will literally fall and be forsaken at the final judgment. Whilst those who do follow his word, who were obedient to it, will be in right standing. They will be able to stand upright with God and experience eternal life at the final judgment. And so church, Grudem says that if we were to truly, truly and simply keep the words of Scripture, the words that you hold in your hands today, the words that you keep next to your bed or the words that you put on your coffee table, if we were to truly, not in a pharisaical religious way, but if we were to truly and simply follow these words, well, then we will be doing every good work that God expects of us. So how do we respond? How do we respond to 
what the psalmist is calling us to. We need to read our Bibles. Sounds simple. And we've heard it a little bit this morning. People say, but I'm not a reader. I'm not really a reader, John. not a reader. I don't know how much time you spend reading this little thing. I read texts pretty much all day long, emails all day long. Am I not a reader? We spend time thinking about things. I don't really spend, I don't really want to, I can't meditate on it, it's boring. But I'm happy to meditate on or think about Drake's latest album and kind of the, uh, the, 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 the nuancedness between, oh, Pusha T released this track and so this is calling Drake out, you know? I know all about the authors of great, great tracks, but I don't really know about the Bible. We need to start reading the Psalms and God's words as prayers as we wait on the coming Messiah. But church, let's be honest. This is not a Bible bashing time. Because of Adam and Eve, we are fallen beings. And we live in a fallen world. And often, when given the choice between the way of the Lord and this world, even though we know we should choose the way of the Lord and his true word that gives us life, we don't. I don't. And so what then? Maybe what if you've never followed God's word this morning? What then as well? Maybe this is the first time you've heard such a message. Maybe you haven't crossed the line of faith. What then? Well, church, the the answer is not to then read the Bible in a religious way out of our own strength. But it is to put our faith and trust in the word. That's confusing, right? So I must read, the, you're telling me not, I mustn't read the word in my own strength, but I must put my trust in the word. Let me explain. You see, in the nation of Israel, when they used the Psalms, they used the Psalms to serve the crucial function of making a connection between the worshiper and God. That's what the Psalms are used for. To make a connection between the worshiper and God. And the Psalms as an entire book particularly demonstrates the importance of reflecting and meditating on what God has done for us. What has he done? Well, he's given us his written word. Amen. Yes, he has. So, of course, we need to read it and meditate on it. But church, I'm here to tell you this morning, I'm here to tell me this morning, that he also gave us the living word. God our Father has given us Jesus, and we desperately need to meditate on that this morning. In John 1, verses 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father of grace and truth. After Jesus died and is resurrected, He's speaking to His disciples, and He says to them in Luke 24, verse 44, He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you before, And that everything about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and look, lo and behold, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Interestingly, Jesus quotes the Psalms more than any other Old Testament book. This morning, church, we have seen that in these first eight verses of Psalm 119 in Aleph, that God's word speaks about the way, spoke about the way. It spoke and said that it is true, and it spoke and it says that it brings eternal life. 
John 14, verse 6, Jesus talking with his disciples in the upper room before he's led away to be crucified, says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, church, Jesus came into the world. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He died the perfect death that should have been ours. And he rose again. And in doing this, he set all those who would put their trust in him in right standing with God. So that we may inherit eternal life. And by doing this, he sets us free to live out the gospel in the power of his Holy Spirit. To read our, our word in the power of his Holy Spirit. So that we may be drawn to him. Church, we need to hear this morning that all of scripture, every single scripture, points us to Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the word. And as we spend time in the word, church, we spend time with Jesus, our Savior. And as we do that, he inspires us to spend more time with him and more time with him and more time with him in his strength, in his power, and not in our own. But we are fallen beings. So what can we say today? What can we pray to Jesus? What can we bring? How do we respond? What would be the appropriate thing? What can we pray? What can we say? If there are words for him, then I don't have them. You see, my brain has not yet reached a point where it could form a thought that could adequately describe the greatness of my God. My lungs have not yet developed the ability to release a breath with enough agility to breathe out the greatness of his love in my voice. You see, my voice is so inhibited, restrained by human limits that it's hard to even send a praise up. If there are words for him, then I don't have them. My God, his grace is remarkable, mercies are innumerable, strength is impenetrable, he is honorable, accountable, favorable, he's unsearchable yet knowable, indefinable yet approachable, indescribable yet personal, he's beyond comprehension, further than imagination, he's constant through generations, the king of every nation, but if there are words for him, then I don't have them. You see, my words are few, and to try and capture the one true God using my vocabulary would never do. But I use words as an expression, an expression of worship to a Savior, a Savior who's both worthy and deserving of my praise, so I use words. My heart extols the Lord, blesses His name forever, for He has won my heart and captured my mind, and He has bound them both together. He's defeated me in my rebellion conquer me in my sin and he's welcomed me into his presence completely invited me in and he has made himself the object of my sight flooding me with mercies in the morning drowning me with grace in the night but if there are words for him then I don't have them but what I do have is good news for my God knew that man-made words would never do for words are just tools that we use to point to the truth so he sent his son Jesus Christ as the word living proof 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn among all creation. For by him all things were created, giving nothingness formation. And by his word he sustains in the power of his name. For he is before all things and over all things he reigns. Holy is his name. And so we praise him for his life, the way that he persevered in strife. The humble son of God becoming the perfect sacrifice. And we praise him for his death. That he willingly stood in our place. That he lovingly endured the grave. And that he battled our enemy. And on the third day he rose in victory. We praise him because he rose. Hallelujah, he rose. He is everything that was promised and we praise him as a risen king and we lift our voice and sing for one day he will return for us and we will finally be united with our savior for eternity so it's not just words that I proclaim for my words point to the word and the word has a name hope has a name joy has a name peace has a name Love has a name, and that name is Jesus Christ. And we'll praise his name forever. Yes, Lord, we praise you this morning. We praise you for your life, for your death. We praise you that you rose again, Lord Jesus. And we come before you now, Lord, putting our trust in you and your word and in your word's ability to transform us into your likeness, Jesus. We thank you for your word, for your peace, for your joy, for your love, for your hope, Lord God. We praise you, Jesus Christ, and we praise your name forever. We praise you, Lord. We ask you that you would instill in us a desire and a thirst and a love for you, for your word, O Lord. We humbly ask, Lord, that you would lead us deeper into you as we journey through this Word of God series. I pray, Lord, that through this time, many, many more would come to know you and to love you more deeply. We ask, Lord, that you would do this in the power of your Holy Spirit, not in any effort of our own. And Lord, as we go from here, we pray that our efforts and words would indeed point to thee, the Word, to you, O Lord. We thank you. We thank you for this time. We ask that your word would light our way as we are entering into this week. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.